Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Ten years ago, I started to uh, move my retirement fund from one company to another. And in this company, they have their retirement funds organized, or mutual funds, according to when you're going to retire. And so, you know, they have it like it's notched off every five years or whatever. And so I... I looked ahead and I said, 2025, you know, I picked the 2025 fund. That was 10 years ago, and 10 years ago, that was 20 years away. And it's only nine years away today. Wow, where did those years go? I wrote the date 2016 for the first time on these sermon notes. A few days ago, I, I put that on the top of my notes and put the, the Sunday that I preached the sermon. And, and I just kind of stopped and went, 2016, holy smokes. Every year when I start writing the new date, I'm a little bit awestruck at how time seems to slip away. The awareness that a whole year has transpired forces us somewhat to consider how we use that year and how we will hope to use the year ahead of us. As we conclude 1 Corinthians 9, I think it's a, a wonderful text for a day like today. And the Apostle Paul has some very powerful instructions that can help us make 2016 a really valuable year. Please follow as I read 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? You should run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or disciplined in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable one. Therefore, here's how I run, not with uncertainty. Here's how I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, these verses are used a lot. I've used them a lot in sermons. They, ha they have some broad application but they also have a more narrow application in the context of which Paul was speaking in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And that context really is summarized up in verse 22. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. The question under discussion for three chapters, that's a pretty significant discussion in the scripture. The question under discussion from the Corinthians is, can I eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? And the Apostle Paul touches on some, some rudimentary facts, such as, there is no God but one. And so somebody can say they have sacrificed it to another God, but there's nothing there. He says, the meat is just the meat, it doesn't change. And, and, uh, but he never actually says, so go right ahead and eat that meat sacrificed to an idol. Instead, 
he keeps turning the conversation to other concepts that are very important. And when he comes down to verse 22, he's kind of summarizing it up saying, listen, here's what really matters in life. What really matters is making disciples. He says, to the weak I became as weak. Who are the weak in the context? In the context, the weak are those Christians who look at the meat sacrificed to an idol and say, I would never touch that because it's been sacrificed to an idol. It's tainted, it's wicked, it's no good. I'm staying away from it. The Apostle Paul says those are the weak Christians because they haven't come to know God and be confident in him enough to say it's nothing. He says, to the weak I became weak, and he says, I have become all things to all men. The Apostle Paul changed his life when he was with those people, not to make them happy, but to help them become disciples. Look at verse 22, to save some. And so the real question being discussed here is, how far will you go for the ministry? And the Apostle Paul said, I'll, I'll change anything I can except God's very word. He said, I don't care about my life. He was ministry driven. He was ministry driven. Because Paul believed there was nothing more important than men and women knowing Christ and growing up in him, he made some very strong choices. And I would suggest to you the mentality that he's going to verbalize in verse 24 through 27 is the very mentality we need as we face a new year and ask the question, what will make this a valuable year? What will make this a good year? And so I would suggest to you that what will make this a good year is if you are ministry-driven. The ministry-driven life has a singular desire. Paul uses athletics as, a, as an illustration, um, if the Apostle Paul was alive today and the Seahawks were in the playoffs, he would be talking about the Seahawks because he knows that we understand these athletic metaphors and these, these concepts about what it takes. Instead, he talks about what we would call Olympic athletes. Now, there were two great Olympic-style games in ancient Greece one in Athens, the Olympics, these games in Corinth called the Isthmian Games, the Isthmus of Corinth, a little piece of land where Corinth was. And these games were, were almost as significant as the ancient Olympic Games. And so he starts off with this illustration of running a race. And he says, don't you know that those who run in the race all run but only one gets a prize. And if I understand his point, he says, the one who gets the prize is the one who is most focused on getting it. He says, you should run in such a way to obtain it. Now, you need to understand, he's not using the illustration of a race and a prize to say only one Christian gets the prize. He's not saying that. He's using it to say, now think about a guy who's running a race in the Olympics. What kind of focus does he have? What kind of intensity does he have? That's what he's trying to illustrate to us. The world-class athlete who runs to win is focused on that one goal. 
when you hear about the training regimens of the Olympic athletes today, it starts in the morning and it gets over at night every day. Why? Because they're saying, there's the gold medal. That's where I'm headed. And they have this intensity to their training. In, in deep contrast to that was me joining the swim team in high school. Okay? It never crossed my mind when I joined the swim team that I should be thinking about winning races. Uh, I joined the swim team so I could learn to swim really well. I learned all the strokes. I learned the best way to do them. And uh, I was happy to fight it out for fifth place out of six swimmers. I accomplished my goal. I had a secondary goal, which was to get in shape for tennis season. But it never was on my mind to say, what will it take for me to win the race? I just didn't think that way. There was one guy on the swim team. His motive for being there was obedience to his mother, who said, I'm not going to have you studying these books all day. You get out and go on that swim team. Wow, there's a turnaround from today, right? Yeah, yeah. Nobody in my high school joined the swim team because it was cool. Now, I don't know if swim teams are cool today. I, I imagine they are, especially after, you know, Michael Phelps or whoever. But nobody in my high school joined the swim team because it was cool to hang out with us. Now, some people joined the football team because it was cool to hang out with them. They were definitely wannabes. Nobody wanted to be a wannabe swimmer. The Christian who is ministry-driven puts Christ first and stays focused on him. Their focus doesn't drift over here you know, oh, I got to make a lot of money. Oh, I got to be famous. Oh, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do that. No, they put Christ first and they stay focused on him. In Luke 9, we hear the story of some people who came to him and said, I want to follow you. Then Jesus uh, said to another one, follow me. He called them to come follow. Remember, he called, uh, he called all the disciples and what did they do? They dropped their net and came and follow. Here, he says, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Now this, at first blush, sounds really cold-hearted. It's like his dad is laying dead at home, and they're waiting to make the funeral preparations. And he's saying, now Jesus, just a minute, I got to go bury my dad. And that is not what he's saying. Because if his dad was dead, he wouldn't have even been there talking to Jesus. What he's saying is, now Jesus, someday my father's going to die. And when he dies, I will be free of my family obligation. But until then, I've got to go be with him. And Jesus says, you let the dead bury the dead and come on, let's get doing some kingdom work. Whoa, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of uh, revolutionary. 
Now, I don't believe that Jesus wants you to leave your family unless a time comes. It came for us when God called us into the ministry, my wife and I. She knew the ministry was where we were headed when we got engaged. I said, this is what I'm going to do. And so we knew that when school was over, we would go to some church somewhere, and we knew we wouldn't get to pick, and sure enough, it wasn't by our families. This is the first time our families ever lived close to us here. And so there may be times like that. Jesus isn't saying you just have to walk away from your family in order to serve him. What he's saying is you have to have a singular kind of focus and a commitment that says, I am a servant of Christ. That's what I'm doing. Can you imagine the Olympic athlete who's running the race and his dad comes and he goes, oh, hey, dad, how you doing? Let's have a visit. Well, of course not. That's idiotic, you're saying. What about the Christian who's walking with the Lord and says, I'm going to serve the Lord, and then this distraction and that distraction and the other distraction? The Apostle Paul said, I'm not going to let that stuff get in the way. It doesn't mean we can't have a family. It doesn't mean we can't have a lot of the blessings of life. But the question is, what is your singular desire? Is your singular desire your family? Is your singular desire serving the Lord? If you are a believer in Christ, you are in the race of godliness and the race of ministry. And what I mean by that is Paul uses the concept of a race to illustrate we're living our life. He says, you're here. Every Christian is in the race of godliness. Every Christian is in the race of serving the Lord. The serving part will look different for everybody. The godliness should look the same for everyone. And the question is, is the race of godliness and service what concerns you most, or are you wandering about the racetrack doing whatever strikes your fancy? You know what it looks like when little kids play baseball? You know what it's like when the kids are in the outfield? They have laser-like focus right on everything that's going on, right? Come on, pitcher, come on, pitcher, come on, batter, blah, blah, blah. No. Oh, there's a butterfly. Oh. oh, there's something in my nose. Oh, there's. And the coach is going, hey, pay attention. See, we can live our Christian life that way, too. We just kind of wandering about, thinking, well, whatever strikes my fancy today. The, the Apostle Paul, was, he was laser-focused, saying, I am going to serve the Lord. The ministry-driven life has a singular desire. I'm, going, I'm here to make disciples somehow, some way. God may use my family to do that. He may use my job. He may use all kinds of things, but that's where I'm at. I am serving the Lord and growing in the Lord. Number two, the ministry-driven life maintains personal discipline. Look at verse uh, 25, please. Everyone who competes for the prize or whoever one who is in the competition is temperate or disciplined in all things. They're temperate or disciplined in all things. I am quite astounded when I, I look at the Olympic athletes and the regimen they go through. I mean, unbelievable. 
all kinds of work for years, for years. Um, in, in verse 25, we could translate that self-control, the, the word uh, temperate. The NIV says this, these people are in strict training. That's kind of using the metaphor uh, in together with the word of self-control. In the Corinthian games, uh, the, the games came around every three years. And to be an athlete, you had to be in the training regimen for 10 months. It was a, a whole specified program. You couldn't just show up at the gate and be admitted to the event. And of course, today you can't do that either. In our day, though, it's not so much that the training regimen is required of an athlete as the performance is required, and you perform at a lower level in order to qualify for the higher level. But the only way you can do this today as an athlete is by the planned control of your whole life. The planned control of your whole life. Now, if any of you follow uh, athletics or, or guys like Michael Phelps, who's who, what in China, he got the most gold medals ever, or maybe in his Olympic career, you know, most gold medals ever by an Olympic athlete. And what has been Michael Phelps' problem since China? Uh, drunk driving, uh, marijuana, um, out of control living. You can't do, you can't be a drunkard and a world class athlete. Not for long. You might get away with it just a little while, but it just isn't going to happen. The world class athletes have planned control of their whole life. There are foods to eat and not eat, there is sleep to be had, there's exercise for strength, there's skills to be practiced. There are activities to be avoided that would injure one. And here's the kicker. The athlete is not just setting aside things that are necessarily bad, but they're just not useful in the pursuit of victory. Look at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9. The Apostle Paul uh, he says, I am, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He said, I know I can eat the meat sacrificed to the idol. He said, I don't need to follow the old Jewish laws. I'm free from that. I am free from all men, but I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became like a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as those under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. This is really at the heart of the issue. Paul was asking the Corinthian believers if they were willing to give up the good and the better for the best. In other words, are you willing to come into training so that you might win the event? 
One commentator summed it up this way, just as athletes exercise strict discipline regarding the diet, sleep schedule, workout regimen, etc., so Christians who take their calling seriously exercise strict discipline, especially in matters of freedom. There are places they won't go, activities in which they won't participate, freedoms they won't allow themselves simply because to do so could lessen their effectiveness as Christ's servants. To be ministry-driven means we give up the good and the better for the best at times when the Lord calls on us to do that. The ministry-driven life maintains personal discipline. The ministry-driven person is control, in control of their life, not the other way around. Number three, the ministry-driven life understands God's recognition. Look at verse 25 again. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or disciplined in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. And there's Michael Phelps himself, and uh, this is at the Athens Olympic Games. And because it was at Athens, they not only gave them the gold medal or the silver or bronze, as the case might be, but they got this laurel wreath. Now, back in the ancient days, in the Corinthian games, the laurel wreath, the laurel crown, would be all they got. Now, they might have gotten some, you know, some admiration from some people, and who knows, people might have given them some gifts or some this or some that, some status. Obviously, they got bragging rights. But this laurel wreath was the official recognition of winning an event. And Paul calls it a perishable crown. It's obviously perishable because it's, it's flora and fauna that's been picked off of its life source, and so eventually it's going to dry up. These flowers here are in the process of drying up. You know, there's one of the leaves on the floor right there, and, you know, another week or two, and they'll go on to their reward, you know. And that, we know that's what happens to this kind of stuff. We expect it. And we just bring in another one to take its place and, and so on. But Paul is drawing a very important difference. Every award you can win in the world is perishable. The gold around Michael Phelps' neck is perishable. Perishable, it's corruptible, it's possible for it to go away. This laurel wreath would be like getting a corsage or a boutonniere to wear to a formal event. It's beautiful, but it fades. No doubt the victor in the ancient game got the bragging rights, but only until somebody else wins the next victory. You're only the world champion until somebody comes along and knocks you off the podium and takes the crown from you. In contrast to that, verse 25, we Christians are in this race of godliness and ministry to win an imperishable crown. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
The foundation of earning God's favor and blessing is to believe in Christ as your Savior. Until then, there is nothing, there is no other way to get into this race, if you will. Verse 12, now, if anybody builds on the foundation, we don't earn our salvation, but once we are saved, we give ourselves to serving the Lord. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. What's the fire? It's not the fire of purgatory. It's not the fire of hell. It is the fire of God's righteous examination. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 tells us that we are all going to stand before God for an examination of what's been done in our body, whether our works have been good or bad. God is going to apply his examination to these works. And some of our works will be shown to be truly godly, and some of them self-driven. And when we come down to 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about a crown, a crown. There are at least four crowns mentioned in the New Testament. And I just want to touch on them to give you an idea. The crown of rejoicing for faithful witnessing. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I understand that as you look at this verse, you could say, well, I don't know if that's an actual crown God's going to give us, or is that just the fact that we'll be there and we'll be all excited that look, look what God has done. He saved some people. I get that. It could go either way, but you hang in there until we get down to the end of this little study. The second crown mentioned in Scripture, the crown of righteousness for loving the coming of Christ. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me there is laid up for me. Remember Jesus said uh, that there's going to be some things laid up in heaven. He's preparing some things for us. A crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me also, but to also all who have loved his appearing. Third, the crown of life for enduring trials. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The fourth specific one that's mentioned here is the crown of glory for faithful pastors. The elders who are among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glories that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. These four crowns are mentioned, and certainly it's possible there are more, and you know, maybe God has told us all, maybe he has not. But one of the things that makes me understand that these crowns will be real and literal, first of all, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, we're laboring, we are running this race for a, an imperishable crown, and then I get to the book of Revelation, and I read this. The four and living creatures, each having six wings, this is a vision of the, of the throne room of God. 
The four living creatures having six wings were full of eyes and they do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And if you were to do a short study in the book of Revelation, you'd find out that the 24 elders is us, the body of Christ. Now, what really makes sense about this whole thing to me is this. God saves us. And he gives us spiritual gifts and the ability to serve him. He gives us the life of Christ so we can grow in him. And he calls us to be a Christian and to do the ministry. And as we do it, he's going to reward us. And in heaven, with our sin-free, perfected minds and hearts, we will look at him and go, you deserve the crown because you're the one who saved me and called me and gifted me and helped me and, and here's the crown. You deserve it, not me. That's what the scene will be in heaven. The crown will be something more that we can worship Christ with. And if I read the book of Revelation right, I think God hands them back to us and I think we do that over and over at worship services. It is a tangible way for us to say, thank you for what you did through me. That will be a day of rejoicing. As we come back to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is challenging the believers to look beyond their personal pleasure in the present day and understand the basis of their future recognition. He's saying, listen, Christian, you can go and just eat the meat sacrificed to the idols and rejoice in that tasty, tender beef that you got for a cheap price and maybe risk hurting some other unbeliever or immature Christian so that they don't mature in Christ. Or you could set that aside and set aside the, the reward and the blessing and the joy that you would get from that and you can look ahead and say, you know what, someday if I serve the Lord well, someday he is going to be handing out the rewards and he is going to give me a crown for faithfully serving him. When our kids were little, it was the beginning of the era in which every kid on a sports team got a trophy. And, uh, you know, in a league where you don't keep score, because there are no winners or losers, we are all just wonderful. And so everybody's going to get a trophy. Friends, when you get to the divine review of your Christian life, you will only be rewarded if and according to how much you served the Lord. You say, how do I know that? Well, because in chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, 
When that fire of God's gaze is applied to our works, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so as through fire. What that means is, I can live my life selfishly, but when I stand before God and he looks at my life and he examines my life, all of my selfishness will be burned up and I will be left holding a pile of ashes. While the fellow next to me who sacrificed himself takes away an armload of crowns And when the worship service comes, he's throwing crowns at Christ's feet, and I'm standing there like this. Now, I know that in a room like this, there are some people who never settle for anything less than an A. And they will just beat themselves to death trying to get that A. And I hope you will apply that energy to walking with the Lord. Because if you do, you're going to please the Lord. I also know there's people in this room who have given up because they never could get an A. And they just said, you know what, I'm just a lousy, I'm just a lousy student, whatever. And so when they hear a text like this preached, they're going, you know, I can't, I can't really live my life completely for the Lord Whatever. And there are some of you who have decided that mediocrity is better than no grade at all. I'll take a C. You know, friends, could I just say to you that the same God who will reward you stands ready to empower you? You're not on your own. There is only one reason for failure, and that is not joining with God to let him help you serve. After I had served the uh, Tukwila Fire and Police Department for five years, which is many years ago now, um, I had a certain kind of level of activity, and, and that, one, that fifth year, for some reason, there was twice as much activity. I was called out twice as many times, and and of course, I just went and did what I was asked to do. But at the, empl- the annual employee dinner, I was the only volunteer who was recognized and given a plaque by the mayor saying, thank you for your service. And I gotta tell you, that felt pretty good. That plaque's still hanging on my wall. How good is it gonna feel when God looks us in the eye and says, good job. Is that not worth some self-discipline now? Is that not worth setting some things aside? God made us with the capacity to feel recognition. How full will your heart be when God hands you a crown? Do you really want to miss that opportunity? I sure don't. Well, number four, the ministry-driven life is, produces a focused activity, a focused activity. Our girl's uh, birthday, uh, you know, Stephanie and, and her sister are twins, and their birthday is December 30th, and uh, 
Molly, uh, who, hint, who hints like I do, put out on Facebook, boy, I sure do like this dessert that my dad used to make. <laughs> okay, you want that for your birthday? Yes. And so I made the dessert, and we got in the car on New Year's Day and drove to Wenatchee to deliver it to her. Now, we didn't, though, turn the GPS on on this trip. We put on blindfolds, and we got in the car, and we just kind of backed out and kind of imagined what it's like to, to go down uh, uh, some, a Sunview place and then take a left. We took a left on ba- North Baker View and then we took another left on the church road and, and we just kind of felt our way along down the church road. You know, they got big curbs on both sides now. You can feel that. And we got down to the end when there was a lot of horn honking and so we turned left. We turned left on, on Mountain View, you know, which becomes Main Street and we just kind of felt our way along. And we got on the freeway and we just said, you know, we're just going to, we're just going to feel our way along. Of course not. That's stupid. That's silly. If we didn't know the way. In fact, when, where she actually lives is this new neighborhood. And, you know, we, we were looking at the GPS to make sure we got there. You can't end up anywhere except at the body shop by driving while wearing a blindfold. And you can't serve the Lord without thoughtful, purpose-driven effort about your Christian life. You cannot wake up on Sunday morning and try to decide if you will go to church. You cannot come to church and ignore all the needs for service. You cannot go to your job site without seeking to do God's work. The ministry-driven believer who honors God gains his reward by determined action, not casual stumbling. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 26, here's the way that I run, not with uncertainty. Can you imagine a guy, <laughs> he's down you know, for the starting of the race, boom, the gun goes off, and, and he, la-di-da, la-di-da, la-di-da. And then he talks about boxing. He says, he uses the term fighting, probably better translated boxing. You know, he's talking about an athletic contest. He said, I'm not just beating the air. I'm looking at the opponent. I'm going after him. The ministry-driven life produces a focused activity. And lastly, the ministry-driven life requires self-denial. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body. Literally, it says, I make it my slave. In Paul's day, the slave did not have his own will. He was at the will of another. And when he talks about becoming disqualified, he's not talking about losing salvation. The Olympic athlete was already a a, a citizen of the country. He had to be a citizen before he could compete. He's not talking about getting kicked out. He's saying that he could lose his reward. And he's, what he's really talking about is, this, is a, a very similar thing here from Romans 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal or fleshly. I'm, I'm living like an unbeliever, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, 
That's what I do. If then I do what, I'm, what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For, for, I, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I don't do, but the evil that I will not to do, that's what I practice. In this text, the Apostle Paul is talking about the battle in the Christian between sin and righteousness. And eventually he comes along to the solutions that we've talked about on other times, which is that that God is in us and God does forgive and God does strengthen, but there is a battle between sin and righteousness and if I am going to be ministry driven, I have to fight the battle and win the battle over sin. It is hard to be ministry driven because of the sin that remains in us as believers and pulls us to ourselves. Just like the athlete who has to say no to things that would derail his performance, we have to say no to things that would hinder our service to God. That's what spiritual self-discipline is. Saying no to things that would hinder our service to God. After <clears throat> losing my voice last, during last week's sermon, I decided uh, maybe I should go visit my favorite uh, general practice doctor and uh, he asked questions and listened to my breathing and did all that stuff that doctors do. And, and he said, sure enough, you're sick. <laughs> and he gave me a prescription and said, take these for 10 days. Well, I'm only, I'm only seven days in. That's why I'm not better, I suppose. Huh? God has given us a prescription for a valuable life. It's called being ministry-driven. There's no doubt that Paul's life was important and impactful. Can you imagine? I mean, when we even think about the other apostles, we can't even name all 12 apostles because the apostle Paul was so significant. He was ministry-driven, and God used him greatly. If you want your life to count to really count and to gain God's reward in this new year. I urge you to spend some time in that passage and say, God, help me to be more ministry-driven in 2016. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that tells us about the Savior and all of these other glorious things you've shared with us. I thank you that we can be your children that we can be transformed now, that we can have an eternity in heaven, and we can serve you. We can do good things for you now to help others know you and grow up in you, and by that, gain your reward in heaven. Father, help us to be driven by your recognition, not our own desires, not the recognition of the world. Help us to be driven by you in this new year. I pray in Christ's name, amen.